uh, in uh, the absence of Pastor Scott, I am uh, sharing with you what's in my heart. If you remember a couple of years ago, we uh, had a study on heaven, and we tried to imagine what heaven will look like. Remember that? I don't know what still remains in your mind, stands out for you as you think about heaven. What does? Just think for a moment. You know, I, I, I remember that, you know, we talked about our bodies, uh, like Scott Rowan's mouth, will be whole. And, and we had this idea of your bodies will be your bodies, but they'll be whole. We talked about creation being perfect. We talked about um, cities which would not need light because the presence of the Lord will be the light of the city. And not to be left behind, the people in the, the Northwoods during cross-training asked, do you think they'll be hunting in heaven? Or snowmobiling? As, a, as an African, and I, I, I share this and people think it's kind of weird, I like crowds. I just love crowds. When I go home to Kenya, and I have uh, the privilege of doing this, or, you know, to some other African country, um, in Kenya I feel safer because I know the landscape. I will uh, sometimes just, just go out to some of the most dangerous parts, like the crowded throngs, the, the places where there's marketplaces, and, and, you know, leave my wallet behind and put on my helmet and just go and feel humanity, <laughs> you know. Oh, the smell of sweat and... Okay, that's enough. <laughs> but that makes me feel human. And, you know, as an African living in the Northwoods, an African cheesehead, that is what I miss the most. That's what I think of when I go to heaven. And it is validated by scriptures that there will be throngs of people. There will be throngs of people. And I'm going to read uh, from Revelation 7, 9 to 12, how those people might look like. So let me read. Revelation 7, 9 to 12, and it's up there. I'm reading from uh, the New Living Translation. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings. And they all fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshipped God. They sang, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so when I think of heaven, I just think of people from who look different, uh, black, white, whatever colors, all yelling in their own languages, and then, you know, the mysteries of how we'll understand each other, and it will be beautiful. That's me, all right? You do the hunting, that's where I'll be in heaven. So I imagine a multicultural heaven, different nations, all before the Lord. And you know what? I don't think I'm alone, because as we have been praying for uh, the pastor that the Lord will bring to our church, the survey, a congregational survey, some of the results um, that came back from that said that we are looking for somebody who will reach across generations. 
I think the idea was that we want to see more millennials and more young people and, uh, you know, just people who are younger, different generations. I have learned that you, when you're dealing with different generations, you are de- dealing with different cultures. And that's what our church is saying, is we want different cultures in our congregation, even if, you know, skin color might be the same. There is a yearning for cross-cultural interactions, even here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. So as one from a dramatically different culture from this, from Kenya, that's where I am, raised in and um, everything else, I'm fascinated by the culture as I get to understand how people are in the Northwoods and in other parts of the U.S. And indeed, I'm privileged to travel quite a bit around the world. What I've discovered is as I learn more about other cultures, I learn more about myself as I see myself through the eyes of the other. And the other here, I mean people who might look different, act different, think, speak differently from me. I learn more about that other, and it fascinates me, but I also learn about God as I see him through the eyes of the other. You see, I think, I'm I'm, I'm totally convinced that God is multifaceted. And each culture sees sort of one facet through the grid of their culture, worldviews. And that we only have like the two dimensions in each culture. But it is like a huge diamond. And in order to see a full diamond, you really do need to see the other angles. You need to turn the, the diamond around, the gem around, in order to be able to fully appreciate the beauty. And the way I believe that he gave us the ability to do that is by interacting with other cultures. Is by seeing God through the lens of other cultures. In fact, I am convinced that one of the passages that is in Genesis that talks about the dispersal of the world, of the people, remember in the Tower of Babel, in Genesis 11, when God was, uh, he sounded upset when he, he was like, well, if as one people they can do this, they were trying to build a tower that would actually reach the heavens. And he dispersed them and he gave them different languages and they went all over the world. I think it was quite intentional. Because I think that pride came from insular thinking. These people would look around and all they would see is us. And they would see everything else and they'd be like, we are so cool. And they started worshipping us. And that brought them to the place where they were trying to challenge God by building this tower that would reach him. See, when all we see is us, we have a very small um, impression of what the world is, and we can think that that's all the world is. Think of a fish in a fish tank that imagines that is the world. And what does that fish think? I am the king of this world. Little does the fish know about the oceans and the, and the seas that are everywhere else and that have a better reflection of what the world looks like. And I believe that this is what Paul was talking about, about in Acts, um, in Acts chapter 17, when he was talking to the Athenian thinkers, 
and he had gone into the city and he had seen uh, their forms of worship and the questions that they had and, and he gave them a pretty famous uh, sort of piece of reasoning, amazing philosophy. But he goes from uh, verse 26, he says, from one man he created all nations throughout the whole, whole earth and he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall and he determined where they would go, what their boundaries would be. And this is what I find most fascinating. His purpose for dispersing them was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he's never far from any of us. I believe that what Paul was saying was that we get to know God better when we are dispersed and we are seeing him from the deserts to the oceans to the tundra uh, to every part of the world. Later, when Paul had, you know, towards the end of his ministry as we know it, and he had been uh, jailed he had been in Jerusalem and, you know, started his slow journey towards Rome, um, in Acts 26, he's, he's, he's before King Agrippa and he's explaining himself and he took every opportunity to share the gospel. And, he, and, he, and he's sharing how he got into preaching the gospel. He talked about his previous life as a prosecutor, persecutor of, of Christians. And, and then he's, he's narrating from uh, verse 15 to 18. And I'm going to start a little earlier in verse 14. Um, when, when Jesus intercepted him, when he was going off to Damascus to, to uh, persecute Christians, and Jesus called him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. And Paul asked, Who are you, Lord? I asked. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get on your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people what you have, that you have seen me and tell them that I will show you what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. And this is what I want to focus on. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that may, they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God and they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place amongst God's people who are set apart by faith in me. There's an author who's written a little book called The 3D Gospel and he looks at that passage and he sees that passage talking about how God meets the needs of all cultures. And he identifies three cultural orientations uh, that, are, that are right there within this passage. And I want to talk about them a little bit. And the first one I want to talk about is an orientation towards either fear or power. Fear or power. And this is uh, from verse 18. We'll focus on that verse quite a bit when he says, I'll send you so that you can throw them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. This represents reaching cultures that are all about seeing release from the powers of darkness to freedom because of the power of Christ. When I was a youth minister in Nairobi, working at Nairobi Chapel, I, uh, in amongst my uh, young people was a young lady called Sophie. And, uh, and Sophie was in college and Sophie was a missionary. 
she was going to be a missionary. We could see that, and whether we went with her or not, she was going to be a missionary. So this was one of those cases where the church was like, I think we'll go with her or somebody else will. And so we sent her to a part of Kenya that is very syncretic. It's a Muslim and has a lot of mix of Islam and traditional language, uh, t- traditional cultures and beliefs and superstitions. And she finally went there the year after she graduated. And, you know, we were like, oh, this young lady going to this place that nobody knows about. And uh, when she got there and she was sort of trying to settle down, she was given a fantastic house by this community. Beautiful house, the best house in the community. And she was like, wow. And it is so cheap to rent. Praise God. And one year later when we went to see her, she had a little church that she had started in this place that was completely unchurched. And she gave us the story of how that happened. She discovered that as soon as she moved into this house, people sat and waited for her to die. Because the missionary who had built this house was always sick, went back to wherever they came from, some other country, and they heard that they died. And uh, some senior person in the community decided, beautiful house, I'm going to live in it. And moved in, and within a short while, they were dead. And a third person did that, and they were like, this house is cursed. Sophie goes in, and I can tell you this because we stayed with her as a small group for a while. 3 a.m. in the morning, you'll hear her praying to Jesus. And she did die. And people started thinking, you know, Maybe what Selfie has is a little more powerful than what's taking away the lives of everybody who lives in this, in this house. And that's how the church started. People are like, we want that one. We want that power behind us uh, that is not going to take our, away our lives. Many countries and, and regions and peoples in Africa are superstitious and they have that power fear orientation. And so are people in the Caribbean, to places like Haiti, which is familiar with many of us here in this church where there is voodoo, fear, power. And the way to communicate the gospel to these people is to show them God's power. And you know, even in the, um, in the, in the New Testament, Paul used this same means to reach people who are of the power and fear orientation. I'm going to read from Acts 13, an encounter um, where Paul and Barnabas were, were, were traveling, and, uh, and here's how it goes. Afterwards, from verse 6, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man, really smart guy. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the sorcerer, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and, and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. Saul, also known as Paul, this is where the flip happened of his name, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he looked at the sorcerer in the eye. And then he said, you son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud and enemy of all that is good. Will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you, and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. 
Instantly, a mist of and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. And then it says, when the governor saw this, now he had heard the word, but when he saw this, he became a believer. For he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. The teaching was backed by power. And that's the orientation of power versus fear. A second orientation identified uh, by Jason Georges is guilt versus innocence. Guilt versus innocence is what we are surrounded by in this place. This is an, a cultural orientation that sees salvation as the washing of sin so that guilt that requires punishment is replaced by innocence. That's what we believe. That is the gospel. And guilt must be atoned for. This is, this is Billy Graham at his best, preaching in the stadiums and preaching to thousands and millions around the world, using reason and logic to reach them. So when we preach in this culture, that is the mode of communication. We have to show that Jesus is Lord. And one of the tools that is used a lot is the Roman's road. Anybody familiar with that? The Roman's road, and it goes like this real quick, and I won't go into it much. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. None is righteous. Romans 3.10, Romans 5.12, sin entered the world through Adam, and we are convinced that we are sinful because we are sons and daughters of Adam. And it goes into Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. We are convinced of punishment and we are convinced of the need to turn around. And uh, 5.8, God shows us his love in, in this. When we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's intervention. It is amazing. Um, and then assurance that we are saved goes in uh, Romans 10. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 10.13, 10.17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Logic that is unbeatable. And Paul was a master of proclamation and had been trained well by the best in his time in how to argue in the Hellenistic culture that he lived in. And there are examples of this all over scriptures where he would bring people from where they were and bring them to the point of salvation uh, through logic. And one example is, is uh, in, in, in Acts 13, um, as he taught the Jews and Gentiles in Antioch. And he was telling them about, about the birth of Israel, coming from there to where they are now. And he says, brothers and sisters, listen. We are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness of your sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight, something the law of Moses could never do. And so by logic, showing that, showing that the New Testament was better than the Old. Logic, amazing, fantastic. It reaches us. I think this I won't even dwell on because I think we get it. We are surrounded by the culture, a culture, especially the Western culture, that sees guilt and innocence. And salvation is coming from a position of guilt to a position of innocence and right with God. And then there's the third orientation. The shame versus culture, versus honor orientation, cultural orientation. And going back to Acts 26:18 again, 
It is when Paul was told by Jesus that they will be given a place amongst God's people who are set apart by faith in me. This is Christ saying, I'll bring them from a position of shame to my inner circle. I'll bring them from a place where they're excluded to a place where they're included. These are the relational cultures for whom it is super important that you do not lose faith in community. And salvation is the taking away of rejection and ridicule and bringing honor by bringing uh, the fallen person back in. This is the quintessential story of the prodigal son going out and shaming his father and leaving it out there. And when he came back to his father, he was crawling, right? He felt like nothing. And what does the father do? Embraces him and reinstalls him in his previous position as a son. Mid, far Eastern cultures and out in Asia, this is the uh, dominant cultural orientation. And, and, and a lot of Africa as well. It, community is super important and you must stay right within community. And for those kinds of communities, that is how to reach them with, with evangelism is to appeal to the shame from coming from shame and into places of honor. An example of this actually in Paul's story, we'll keep dwelling on Paul in Acts 16, where Paul and Silas were out preaching and as usual they annoyed people and the people beat them up and locked them up and then they were locked up and in the middle of the night there was an earthquake and the jail doors opened, we know the story. And then it says that the Philippian jailer wakes up and looks and the doors are open. And assuming that his prisoners had escaped, he was ashamed enough that he wanted to kill himself. And he raises his sword and is about to kill himself. And, and Paul and Silas say, stop, don't kill yourself, we are all here. And eventually he and all his uh, family are saved. You know what puzzled me about this passage until I understand what was understood what was happening? I was thinking if he was afraid that he'd get in trouble in the morning because his prisoners were gone, then he was still in trouble in the morning because he let them go, right? That wasn't why he was trying to kill himself. It was the shame of losing face because he was losing all his prisoners on his watch. And when he realized that this man had chosen to retain his honor, he and his family became Christians. So those three orientations then, fear, power, guilt, innocence, and honor, shame. I want to say some things about those three orientations, why I like approaching the world, the whole world, uh, through this lens of these three cultural orientations. But there are some cautions. Right. First, I want to say that these orientations are not exclusive. This is not an exclusive framework of looking at the cultures of the world. There are many, many other uh, frameworks of looking at the cultures of the world. 
there are people who have, uh, and they're right, you know, they're, they're right. Uh, there are cultural orientations that talk about the I versus we orientation, or the vertical versus the flat, depending on, you know, you're thinking about power, direct conversation versus indirect, low context versus high context. Um, there's task versus relationship, time versus, versus event. Um, this is what we love to say, uh, you know, in Africa, we are like, you Westerners, you have so many watches, but you have so little time. Because for us, the event is what matters. Why I like this is because I can remember three, rather than the multiple other ones that are out there. And they tend to contain all, all these other orientations or typologies, or some people will call them cultural values. It works for me. And it worked for Jason, and I loved it. And the scriptures seem to align uh, with, with, with these orientations are pretty good. Second thing I want to say is um, that they are not value propositions. None of the typologies is better than the other. None is superior to the other. And none is without merit, and none is without fault. You're thinking about the guilt versus innocence um, orientation. It is powerful. It has had a great impact in Christendom. It is from this orientation that we have the Bible schools that are all over the world. We learn exegesis and hermeneutics through logic and philosophy. And it is a great gift to the world. And the, and the, and the, and the word of God has been spread throughout the, the world because of this orientation. But it also has a blind side. It can be too individualistic. People have argued their way out of their faith. Let me know what I'm talking about here. And suddenly, truth is maybe truth, and it depends on what, what the meaning of is is, and, and we work our way all the way out to where we even start doubting our gender and doubting what truth is and what sin is. There is a dark side to the uh, guilt versus innocent cultural orientation. We talk a bit about the shame versus honor. The merit of the shame versus honor orientation is the dwelling in community. Very strong in community. I am because we are. You know, it, it aligns with what in scriptures, uh, in Hebrew, um, they refer to as hesed, which is loving one another, but it's also hesed, the love of God. And by loving one another, we understand better the love of God. It's powerful. Community is where it's at. However, it can lead to worshiping community, and other values start going down in light of community. We have read, I'm sure, in utter shock, of families that killed their daughter who was raped and brought shame to the family because she was violated. And now the family cannot deal with her and so they kill her. Doesn't make sense in the guilt-innocence culture, does it? Or people refusing to take responsibility for their own actions because of the community. Uh, they say it, so I must do Fear and power orientation points to the spiritual realm. And this is where the African says, Amen. Give me faith and I will conquer the world. Ready 
should aim. <laughs> Go by faith and you will get to where God is calling you to. Faith, powerful, and, and, and our orientation is amazingly aware of the spiritual realm. This is an orientation I have come to know more and more uh, through mission trips uh, and the likes, like visiting Sophie that I talked about earlier on. Let me tell you a little bit about the context where Sophie was in. We went there, and my culture loves land and loves farming, and it was green. This place was lush, and there were all sorts of properties around lying fallow. Nobody was farming, and people were desperately desperately poor and hungry. And I wondered, how can this be? This land is amazing. And Sophie explained to me, this is how it goes. Uh, If you're one of those guys who decides, okay, I'm going to go and farm, and you go and start farming, and it's looking good, your neighbors look at you and go, oh my goodness, this guy has amazing juju, amazing charms. That's why they're able to do this thing. I must go to the diviner and make sure that I get charms that are more powerful in case this person decides to curse me. And so you go and get and pay money and, and get, you know, charms, and then you come back. And just so that Mo knows that I'm more powerful, you leave those charms so that he can see them as he's going to the farm. And so poor Mo is going to the farm the following day and he's like, whoa, man, this must be more powerful than mine. I'm going to go back to the diviner and get more powerful charms. And so you can see where it goes. And soon nobody is farming because everybody is too tired and too afraid. There is a dark side to the power versus fear orientation, and we have seen it. So the third thing I wanted to say about this is that they are not distinct categories. Their orientations are not pure. None of us is just one orientation and not the other. There's a website um, up on the screen, and, and I can, it's actually very easy. It's uh, theculturetest.com. Culturetest.com. Check out what your orientation might be in this um, framework. All of us have a mix of all three. Hi, and, 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 you know, and they're born of, of, of your own affinity, you know, your own nature, a little bit of your nurture, how you are brought up, and, and, and your family. And for your family, sometimes you go with what they have or what they don't have. We've got the exact opposite way because they're our family. Or experiences that are, like I've had out, um, you know, uh, on mission trips and, 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 and grown in the, in the fear uh, versus power orientation. I found out that I am 60% shame versus honor, which is no surprise because that's my, my family. 35% guilt, innocence. I have been into school too long. <laughs> and only 5% fear and power. And I actually really wish I could grow in the fear and power because I believe my faith would even be much more. I want to, I want to end with a few implications as uh, concerns you, know, you here today. So what? What do we think of what we think about God of the nations? The first thing is to just recognize that we were created with a perfect blend of innocence, honor, and power. So Adam and Eve, created by God. And every day they see the most powerful being you can imagine. And they're comfortable. Right? They're fine. And they're talking with God and they know that they're innocent because there is no fear. Right? 
And they were naked and they had no shame. Innocence. No guilt. No fear. No shame. But when they sinned against the Lord, what happened? They had the Lord coming. Right? And they hid from him because they felt guilt. What have we done? And when he called and asked them in, in Genesis 3, verse 10, Where are you? They responded, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Shame. Sin distorts how God created us in terms of these orientations. And the third thing is we need to know how to meet people where they're at. Um, in terms of these orientations, as we um, evangelize and, and, and draw people closer to Christ. We need to embrace the whole gospel um, and meet people exactly where they are. Here's an example, um, and I'm going to ask you to play the video, of preaching or giving the story of salvation from a guilt, you know, from a shame of us is honor culture. Okay, let's roll. In the beginning was God. He's like an honorable elder with a grand yurt. He's like the great uncle we all wish for. Powerful, respected, and always faithful. One day God created the mighty mountains, the warm sun, and fresh waters to showcase his glory. Then God made Adam and Eve, crowning them with great honor and glory. He said, have my authority, rule over my creation, bear my glory. They were God's children living in God's honorable village. Even with no clothes, Adam and Eve felt no shame. Then Satan appeared and said, Get more glory, eat the fruit, and be equal to God. But the second they tasted the fruit, their honor vanished. They felt shame. God found them hiding. You have been disloyal children, shaming yourselves and dishonoring me. What do we humans do with disgraceful things like dirt, pigs, and outhouses? We keep them far away to preserve our dignity. So likewise, God banished them. Adam was dejected. I have no name, no glory, no family, and no honor. I have only shame. In the shameful village, Adam and Eve had children, who had children, who had us. Do you know what it means that we are descendants of Adam and Eve? Imagine if your mom was the village prostitute, or your dad defected during battle you'd get their shame. We inherit shame, then our sin brings on more shame. So one day someone had an idea. Let's make our own honor. They created multiple groups or cultures. One said you had to wear black suits and drive Mercedes, but the other determined you have to wear orange robes and be a monk. If you maintain the group's expectations, you got some honor and status. But this honor was temporary because it was made by humans. These group rules actually increased shame by excluding some people. Even when God selected one group to bless the other groups with honor, they boasted in their election and shunned others. When people tried to create honor for themselves, they only produced more shame. The only person who could help the honorless was God, the source and essence of honor. So God became human and entered the shameful village. Could you ever imagine a big politician with a mansion going to live in a trash dump? That was Jesus. Jesus was amazing. 
One time a bleeding woman snuck up and touched him, and he wasn't defiled or shamed. She was purified and dignified by Jesus. He loved and accepted everyone, regardless of their shame. Jesus spoke of a great feast, where the disgraced and dismissed were honored guests. Following Jesus, not the cultural rules, makes people acceptable and worthy. But the people living for earthly honor were threatened by this. So Jesus was arrested, mocked, whipped, spat on, and nailed upon a cross. He was covered in shame publicly. Why? Why would one perfectly honorable person be so shamed? The shame Jesus bore was not his own. He bore our shame. And then Jesus fully defeated that shame. He rose from death to glory. Jesus crossed back to God's village and got a great name and place of honor. Jesus' resurrection from the dead built a new bridge from death to life, from earth to heaven, from shame to honor. Finally, people could get what they always wanted, true and eternal honor from God. But not everyone followed Jesus to God's village. Some were content with the false honor they accumulated. A few thought their shame too great even for God, and others feared what relatives might think. But some trusted that Jesus took their shame and followed him. To them, God gave a new robe, hat, and inheritance documents. Humans were back in God's village. They lived honorably ever after. Amen. I, I uh, could go on talking about this, but I know we've uh, come to the end of, of that time. So I want to end with a prayer. And this is the prayer which Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3, um, starting from verse 14 to 21. And so Paul prays, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with the inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide and how long and high and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. And now, all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him and in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. So if you want to talk a little bit more about this, we will be meeting at 1045 uh, for cross training. However, there will not be Sunday school because all the kids are gone. <laughs> but let's go out, have a cup of coffee and, and, and uh, fellowship and build our community and then uh, those who can stay, come join us at 1045. Thank you very much.